Hey, good morning, everybody. As always, it is great to be with you, to see your faces, and it's a beautiful morning, isn't it? I know we got like the 53-degree weather day, and now it's gotten really cold, but I'll take the sunshine, so that's pretty exciting. Uh, so if you happen to be here checking out H2O for the first time this morning, I just want to say welcome. My name is Kathy. I'd love to talk to you after service, but we're, we're really glad that you're here. This semester, we have been making our way through the book of Mark, one of the four Gospels in the Bible, which is an account of Jesus' life. And each week, we've been marching through chapter by chapter. And if you've had the opportunity to read it along with us, then you know that this morning we'll be spending our time in chapter 6. So as we turn our focus there, let's begin with prayer. Dear Lord, thank you so much for this day and for the opportunity to gather together as people who are seeking you. Your word is precious, and we long to see you and your heart more clearly in every chapter. Please guide our attention and focus this morning to you and what you'd like to speak to us. Amen. All right, so my first summer after graduating from high school, I had an opportunity to be hired for my first engineering internship through a connection of my father's in the automotive industry up in Michigan. So for that summer and the following summer, I can't say that I did very much. There were about three things that I was assigned to do. The first one was when the real engineer made changes to any of the engineering blueprints. He'd give them to me and I would go in a simple AutoCAD program and just make a couple changes. More of my time was spent in a tiny copy room that smelled very heavily of ammonia, which is a primary chemical needed to make these gigantic copies of these engineering drawing blueprints. And the third thing is that my desk was located in an office that was sort of, well, I'll just say it, it was a storage area for their roles of engineering drawing. So wall after wall, and then here was my little desk. But the funny part is, because I sat there, I believe they gave me this big title, which is pretty silly, but it was Drawing Control Engineer. And so, pretty glorified for what I was actually doing in there. But again, I happily put that title on my resume, and I very much believe that that little bit of experience and the pretty silly title actually gave me all the other opportunities that I had from that point on in the engineering industry. And so in fact, I was recently reading, I think about five years ago, there was a study conducted that said 91% of employers prefer hiring candidates with work experience. Now I have to imagine that that surprises nobody here because aren't we the same? Isn't it more comforting to go to a doctor that has years of experience treating a particular ailment that we may be facing? Or aren't you more likely to listen to a professor that has real-world experience in their subject matter? For that very same reason, it has felt so significant and comforting that Jesus, God in the flesh, walked this earth. When we read the Bible and when we consider believing Jesus, it's so helpful to remember that these are not messages from a far-off, distant God passing along instructions to us, but they are from a God who stepped into our own human experience and walked among us. 
As we talk about Mark 6 this morning, I would love us to filter it all through this question that's put up behind me. And the question is, what comfort, confidence, and reassurance can we gain as we journey through this broken world by having Jesus as our experienced, trusted guide? So I'm going to just read that one more time because it's a little wordy. What comfort, confidence, and reassurance can we gain as we journey through this broken world by having Jesus as our experienced, trusted guide? So let's begin, Mark 6. Jesus left there and went to his hometown, accompanied by his disciples. When the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were amazed. So chapter 6 picks up in this whirlwind of the gospel that we've been talking about, where we have been reading account after account of Jesus healing the sick, driving out demons, preaching to crowds, offending religious leaders, calming storms, and at the very end of chapter 5, he brought a little girl back from the dead. And that's where we start chapter 6. He leaves the synagogue's leader's house where this miracle took place, and he returns to Nazareth, his hometown. When the Sabbath came, we see him in the local synagogue in this town. And synagogues at the time of Jesus were really community centers that served both the spiritual and the physical needs of the community. And this makes sense that we hear so many accounts throughout Jesus's ministry that that's where he's at, because people gathered there for a variety of reasons. So during worship services, it was custom for the chief ruler of the synagogue to select a delegate of the congregation and to have them read a benediction, for example, like what we read at the end of our services, and then this person would be given a scroll of prophecy to read from and even be invited sometimes to do the teaching. Many times when a popular teacher or rabbi was traveling through town, they would be the ones inviting, invited to serve in this way at the Sabbath service. And this is what Jesus was doing in his hometown. And while Mark doesn't specify the portion of prophecy that was handed to Jesus, we read in the Gospel of Luke exactly what that was. So let's read that here, Luke 4. He went to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and on the Sabbath day he went into the synagogue, as was his custom. He stood up, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor, he has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him, and he began by saying to them, Today scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Now, I so wish that instead of me standing up here talking this morning, that we could actually hear the remainder of Jesus' teaching. But, however, we're not given those specific details in this account. We do, however, have recorded how his hometown crowd responded to him. So, continuing on in Mark, we read, Where did this man get these things, they asked? What is this wisdom that he has been given? What are these remarkable miracles he is performing? Isn't this the carpenter, 
Isn't this Mary's son and the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? Aren't these his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. So Jesus claims the prophecy of Isaiah 61, revealing that he is filled with the Holy Spirit and that he can bless and rescue the poor, captives, blind, and oppressed. This is the sacred description of the Jewish people that they believe will identify the true Messiah or Savior. And Jesus here is saying that he is the Messiah that they have been waiting for. The people in his hometown, Nazareth, cannot accept it. In fact, they take offense at him. And this word, offense, as I was reading through it, it really jumped out in my mind. And so I was looking at the definitions, and it seems to be kind of a a spectrum or continuum um, of different things people can feel when they feel offended. On one end, it can be a total moral outrage. But on the other hand, it can indicate sort of an annoyance or a resentment to a perceived insult or disregard for oneself. And what we read here seems to be a little bit more of the latter, is what his hometown people are expressing. We don't hear them debating the actual scripture that he's talking about. Instead, we hear them saying something more like, who do you think you are? We saw you grow up. We know your background. We know your family. Don't insult us by claiming you are something more. And we see they had a significantly lower estimation of him than his countenance and his message afforded. So in Mark 6, we continue. Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his own town, among his relatives, and in his own home. He could not do any miracles there except lay his hands on a few sick people and heal them. He was amazed at their lack of faith. Now, if we take a moment to consider Jesus in this account, we see that he was stunned by their lack of belief. Perhaps he thought, guys, you know me. Can you not see that this is true? Have you not heard about what God is doing? Instead, he was dishonored by the people he perhaps spent most of his time with. How painful, right? I'm also reminded of another account in his life where Jesus experienced pain. Shortly before his death on the cross, he wept as he approached Jerusalem. And this stands out because circumstantially he was riding on a colt and people were laying palm branches and coats to line his path and they were calling out praises to him. And many of you, if you've ever been to a Palm Sunday service, uh, churches will sometimes bring in palm branches for, um, yeah, just so we can be part of this story. However, as this is all happening, Jesus is literally weeping because he knew what lay ahead. His tears were for the people of Jerusalem. He knew how they longed for peace, and he also knew that they would not recognize his coming. He wanted to be there, and he was offering just the peace that they were looking for. 700 years before Jesus came as Messiah, there was a prophecy written, also recorded in the book of Isaiah, about what he would experience as he walked on this planet. It asserts that he would be despised and rejected by humans and that people would look down on him and that he would be a man of suffering, familiar with pain, and as some translations say, very acquainted with grief. 
Some of what we read Jesus experiencing are some of the most difficult things in life, being despised, rejected, suffering, pain, being thought little of. We know this because walking in this broken world, we have experienced some of these things as well. Let me ask you guys, have you ever felt the rejection from close people in your life? Have you ever not been believed? Have you ever cried over the brokenness you see in this world or over those who don't know the goodness of God? In these moments, the comfort we can experience by having Jesus as our guide is that he understands us and we can offer up these opportunities to connect with him in these deeper places in life. And despite the rejection Jesus faced in his hometown, as we continue on in Mark 6, we see Jesus inviting and preparing his disciples to walk the same path. So let's read Mark 6, 6 through 12. Then Jesus went around teaching from village to village, calling the twelve to him. He began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over impure spirits. These were his instructions. Take nothing for the journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in your belts. Wear sandals, but not an extra shirt. Whenever you enter a house, stay there until you leave that town. And if any place will not welcome you or listen to you, leave that place and shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them. They went out and they preached that people should repent. They drove out many demons and anointed many sick people with oil and healed them. And now I love that like a good guide, Jesus sets the expectations. If any place will not welcome or listen to you, leave that place. Here's what you do. And again, he invites us to follow him and walk in his ways, not as one from far off, but as one who is very near and acquainted with what we may face. In fact, following this account in Mark, we are thrown into a bit of a side story. So as the disciples were going out and word of them was spreading and the miracles that were happening, um, people began to hear about them. And one of those people was Herod, who was the ruler of that region under the Roman Empire. And when he hears this, he thinks, oh my goodness, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. And he is the man who ordered John the Baptist to be beheaded. And so the side story in the book of Mark 6 is the account of what led to Herod taking those actions against John. But in general, we can glean that following the Lord, as John the Baptist did, can lead to rejection and persecution that he experienced. In 1 John 3, 13, we read, Do not be surprised if the world hates you. Yet Jesus calls us to follow him anyways. It's worth it. Reading through the rest of Mark, and I encourage you to do, to do so, it's incredible, we read of the amazing things the disciples experienced following Jesus. Jesus, who is called the Prince of Peace, calls them to rest. Jesus, the bread of life, leads them in miraculously feeding 5,000 people. Jesus, the one who offers living water to those who are thirsty, was observed walking on water. And Jesus, the great physician, heals the sick wherever he went. What an incredible honor. What an adventure to walk with the Lord as he ushers in his kingdom. 
Jesus articulates the reality we live in as his followers in John 16:33 when he says, I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Now since Jesus' time, you know that there have been countless men and women of faith who have trusted Jesus as their guide. And one who stuck out to me in particular is a man who is now referred to as St. Francis of Assisi. Has any of you ever heard of him before? A couple? Okay. He's, it's, yeah. Look him up. He's, he's, his story is really cool. But briefly, he was born about a thousand years after Jesus walked this earth. And since then, about a thousand years has passed. However, so many parts of his story, even though he's from a different part of the world and a long time ago, so many parts of his story could be some of our own. So he grew up in an affluent family, but around the time he was college age, he started to become disillusioned with the trappings that came along with a life of wealth and ease. And several life circumstances at that point in his life just grabbed his attention and turned it a little more towards thinking of eternal matters and being introduced to Jesus. And so one day, he was at church and he was listening to a teaching where a very similar verse that we just read in Mark was read, but it was shared from the Gospel of Matthew. So we'll read that. It's in Matthew 10. And it says, as you go, proclaim this message. The kingdom of heaven has come near. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse those who have leprosy, drive out demons. Freely as you have received, freely give. Do not get any gold or silver or copper to take with you on your belts. No bag for the journey or extra shirt or sandals or staff, for the worker is worth his keep. Whatever town or village you enter, search there for some worthy person and stay at their house until you leave. So hearing this piece of scripture became a decisive moment in Francis's life. And basically, the account is that right then and there, he declared this is what he wished for and this was what he was seeking. So apparently he removed his shoes and discarded his staff and he cloaked himself with a tunic and he began to go out and preach repentance. And initially, he faced a lot of rejection and ridicule from his family and his community, but he was not shaken in his resolve to, to imitate the life of Jesus and to literally carry out the work in the same way that he saw Jesus doing. And so he spent the rest of his life giving himself over to this kind of work, and more and more men and women began to want to emulate what he was doing and kind of follow in his footsteps. And so he ended up setting forth just a very simple rule for the movement, and that was to follow the teachings of our Lord Jesus Christ and to walk in his footsteps. And it's, incre it's incredible because this happened a thousand years ago, but if you look up today, and it means it's, it's evolved a little bit, but there's 665,000 people around the globe that still I think they call themselves Franciscans, and so they still try to emulate these, these same types of things from Jesus' life. And from the stories we read in Mark, and again, other men and women of faith who has seen Jesus as a trustworthy guide, it's just very encouraging. And not only did Jesus set honest expectations 
of both the highs and the lows that we may experience as his followers, but he first walked the path to show us the way we should go. Now, have any of you ever seen a documentary from people who want to climb Mount Everest? Anyone? <laughs> Our family, we like documentaries. So, okay. If you're interested, take a look. But interesting fact, if you want to climb Mount Everest, the Nepal government requires you to hire a Sherpa to take you up and down the mountain stretch. And Sherpas are members of the Himalayan people that live in just a certain region of Nepal, and they're highly skilled mountaineers. And so these incredible people prepare the route for hikers to carry, to climb. They carry essential equipment, and their whole goal is to work to ensure the safety of the group during the entire journey up and down the mountain. And I was thinking about these people because in the same way Jesus has prepared our way, he knows the footsteps to take and calls us to walk in them. We can have confidence as we journey through this broken world by having Jesus as our guide because he has already walked the path that he's calling us to. And again, our God is not a distant God. He is a God that out of his love for us came down and stepped into our very experience. He can empathize with what we experience in this broken world, and he showed us the way that we should go by his words and his actions. And the best news, you guys ready, is that he's still with us right here today. So a few months ago, I got to go and get a massage from my neighbor. I have a neighbor who actually happens to be a professional masseuse, and she lives like right in our building, so that's fantastic. And as she was guiding me through this process, the first thing she said was, okay, close your eyes, and I want you to picture just a very happy place from your life, somewhere where you can escape and just be totally at peace and relax. And so as I lay there, I started, as if I was scrolling through my phone, I started to scroll through just places that I thought, okay, maybe this place would hit kind of what she's, what she's going for here um, to just set a backdrop to, to peace for this massage, whatever. And so as I was laying there, I realized I could start feeling my heart beat just race. And then all of a sudden, just this like flush of anxiety came and I'm laying there trying to relax and looking at these pictures from my life. And in this moment, I realized that there's actually no place I've ever been in my life, no matter how beautiful it was, that did not also bring with it the sad reality of the brokenness of the world in its variety of forms. And so I was laying there realizing this, but then all of a sudden, I pictured Jesus with me throughout my life. And slowly, as these pictures re-scrolled through my, through my mind, and I was picturing him with me, then all of a sudden, every one of those places became a place of peace and rest. In those places, I was seen, and I was loved, and I was carried. And just him alone made all the difference. See, the world tells us we need to escape and get away from the difficulties in all kinds of ways, right, they offer. But the reassurance that we need is simply that God is with us. And again, I don't share that story as some sort of mental exercise in my imagination. I share it because as believers in Jesus, this is our actual reality. Over and over in Scripture, the Bible declares that God is with us, that he will never leave us, 
and that he'll never forsake us. In fact, before Jesus died on the cross, he told his disciples that it was better for him to go because then he could send to us the Holy Spirit. And we, when we put our trust in Jesus' saving work, the Holy Spirit literally comes and dwells inside of us to continue on as our guide. Then after Jesus' death and resurrection, just before he ascended into heaven, he proclaimed, Surely I am with you always to the end of the age. And now that Jesus is seated at the right hand of the throne of God, this is what God's word says in Hebrew 4. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weakness, but we have one who has been tempted in every way just as we are, yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. We don't have to fear our journey ahead. We don't have to question whether we're known by God. We don't need to be hesitant to approach God and to ask for mercy or help or grace, the reassurance that we can gain on our journey with Jesus as our guide is that he is with us. He is very near. Now, I don't know where all of you are at this morning, but I do know that this comfort and this confidence and this reassurance are available to you as well. And as we go forth from here today, I just have two questions for us to consider this week. The first one is, do you actually believe that Jesus can guide you through life? And the second one, do you believe that where he wants to take you is good, even though it may be hard? So I think the questions are up on the screen. You can feel free to snap a picture or write them down, but I really do encourage just to take a quiet moment and to just ask yourself those questions and see what answers come from those. I also encourage you to go back and read Mark 6 and then maybe even go on to Mark 7 so you'll be all set for next week. Let's pray. Dear Lord, thank you for this day that you have given us I pray specifically for those of us here that are in need of comfort, confidence, and reassurance. Lord, may we receive these things like our brother St. Francis as we follow your teachings and walk in your footsteps. You alone, Lord, are our trusted guide through this life, and you will bring us safely home where we shall see you face to face one day. In your precious name, amen.